Love a good fright? Stream your fears with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and acclaimed exclusives like Creepshow and Slasher, Flesh and Blood, experience what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series covers the horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of horror, thriller, and supernatural fan. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good, it's scary. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. The Real-Time Crime Podcast is for true fans of true crime. Join Leah Lamar and Teddy Mellencamp for an iHeartRadio original podcast dedicated to armchair detectives. Embark on a quest to unravel unsolved mysteries and delve into current criminal trials in real time. Why do I obsess over true crime? It's because I need to know every detail because they say that the devil's in the details. Listen to Real-Time Crime on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We found a tape in Ron Ward's boxes from 2007. In it, he's reading a letter that his lawyer, Jerry Sallings, had received from the special prosecutor, Tim Williamson. If you and your clients do not wish for the state to attempt to obtain additional forensic evidence to be used in this criminal investigation, I suggest you file your request for injunctive relief. The letter informs him that the state intends to do another exhumation and autopsy on Janie. Great efforts have been taken to schedule this exhumation and autopsy. My experts cannot be present again for several weeks. And Dr. Bunnell, or whichever family medical expert, is present and only observed. Now, come on now. Ron is frustrated. He doesn't understand why Tim Williamson doesn't trust Dr. Burnell's conclusion that Janie was hit in the face with a blunt object, that her death was a homicide. Dr. Burnell's not just some kind of backyard form dog, you know. He's a highly credible pathologist. Why on earth does he want to question a, a renowned pathologist that came back here? I have no speculation. The Ward family had painstakingly had Janie's body exhumed and autopsied a second time. Why did Tim Williamson need to do this again? We have got to file uh, an injunction. Otherwise, we'd be saying we didn't believe Dr. Bunnell. We'd go along with the state. We didn't believe Dr. Bunnell. We don't want our daughter's remains removed and tampered with again, no. But we know it's, it's, we can't prevent it, but we can't insert Hey, hey, look, we don't agree with this. We agree with Dr. Bunnell's findings and all of the investigation that we've done at this point. Now, what's your excuse for not agreeing with Dr. Bunnell? Three years and over $10,000 later, 
Tim Williamson said he did not find any conclusive evidence that Janie's death was a homicide. In the end, he can't determine anything. So in August of 2007, they exhumed Janie's body one more time for a final autopsy. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Janie's third autopsy is a spectacle. With Mike Masterson's columns, Arkansas's attention is on the case. Everyone is waiting to see what will happen. This time, Tim Williamson finds an out-of-state pathologist to perform the autopsy. He wants someone whose credentials are impeccable, someone who is not controversial, someone who can help him convince the Ward family and the rest of the state that he is being completely impartial. Because of the conflicts and and the, the concerns of the family of anyone in the state of Arkansas doing this, uh, they were they questioned the, everybody's involvement completely. So we were trying to stay as independent as possible and give them the, the greatest assurance and afford them uh, the, the opportunity to know that we've done everything we possibly could do to do do an independent, totally independent, complete review. Uh, I got to looking for medical uh, examiners or pathologists nationally recognized so that we could bring somebody from out of state in to actually do this investigation. And Dr. John Pless out of Indianapolis was by far and above the the most appropriate choice. We we had a painstaking step-by-step process for the exhumation. The family had a right to be present, had the representative present. We, we did not want anyone saying that we had in any way interfered or uh, manipulated uh, Jamie's body before this could be done. So when we had her exhumed, uh, there was a state police present, law enforcement present, and a press presence at the cemetery. We transported her to the state crime lab. And because of the family's concerns about the, they were concerned that the, the crime lab might some way or another try to manipulate the findings or tests or, again, the body before a chance to be examined. We placed her body into a sealed locked room. We sealed it, uh, controlled access to it, even put a camera, motion sensor cameras up. I think we alleviated any concerns that might be about any manipulation of, of any evidence. The wards make it clear they don't trust Tim Williamson or the crime lab. They want to make sure that the pathologist selected, Dr. John Pless, will do an accurate autopsy. They asked Dr. Brunel to be present, and the autopsy had been rescheduled so that he could attend. But at the last minute, Dr. Brunel had a conflict and sent a different pathologist to be present for the family. There were other people supervising the autopsy as well, including an FBI consultant from ABC and a forensic anthropologist. The first stop was the University of Arkansas Medical Center, where the team put Janie's body through a CT scan to see a 3D rendering of her skeleton. Then, they brought the body to the Arkansas Crime Lab, where every part of the body was dissected. 
Ron and Mona and their lawyer, Jerry Sallings, met with Dr. Pless and with Tim Williamson after they completed the autopsy. Ron recorded the meeting. It begins with Dr. Pless explaining his results. We went quite a bit further than either Dr. Malik or Dr. Bennell by literally removing all of the skin from the body so that we could see any evidence of hemorrhage in the soft tissues around the bone. We had the advantage of the 3D x-ray examination, so we knew what all was intact before we really went in there to do that. We found bruises or hemorrhages, also referred to as contusions, of the right elbow, of the left back, where Dr. Malik had made his incision. I also found multiple small hemorrhages in the epiglottis, and that's where sometimes you can get a crouton or a small piece of bread caught back in your throat and in the trachea. And in my experience, hemorrhages of that type are seen in people who choke on things. Those are basically my findings in the examination and my opinion that at some point or another, just prior to her collapse, she got something caught in her throat, couldn't breathe, couldn't talk, and as the oxygen level was reduced, she finally collapsed. After all this time, the wards get another opinion that doesn't make sense to them. No one ever described their daughter as choking or coughing. They said that she was lying on the ground and she would gasp. But that was it. I didn't describe her choking. Choking, though, is just an opinion. Officially, Dr. Pless leaves the cause and manner of death as undetermined. He also suggests that Janie could have had a heart arrhythmia. After Janie's first and second autopsies, her organs were put in a bag inside her abdomen. But Dr. Pless couldn't make an official diagnosis because Janie's heart was missing. Do you know what happened to the heart? Someone, probably a funeral person, an embalmer, must have had disposed of those. Uh, that's the only reason I can think of why they wouldn't be there. Is that normal for a heart to be missing when you have the other organs of um, It's not normal, but it happens. I've seen it happen before. Dr. Pless also completely disagrees with Dr. Bunnell's most significant findings. He says he sees absolutely no evidence of a spinal injury. Ron is shocked and pulls out the photos that Dr. Malik sent to him. Photograph sent to us by Dr. Malik himself that shows a, the vertebrae's been cut in a lapomendectomy and it shows the spinal cord exposed. Did you? Was jagged and torn? Did you see that? Also? Yes. Yes. Okay. And uh, that was all done by Dr. Malik in his examination of the neck. There's no evidence of any hemorrhage. I know this looks red, and this looks pretty bad when you look at it, but there's no hemorrhage there that you would expect to see if it were a blunt force injury of any kind. What do you mean, Dr. Malik? Total spinal cord? Is that what you're trying to say? That was part of his examination of the body. It's not 
anything that was done prior to the autopsy. It's all modifications that he has made in his examination of the body. Dr. Pless also says he didn't see any evidence of abrasions or trauma on Janie's face. When pressed by the ward's lawyer, he admits he didn't take any samples from the face to look at microscopically. Dr. Pless says it's because it wouldn't have made any difference, because he didn't see any hemorrhaging. Why didn't you take samples? Because there was no hemorrhage in associated patient with those areas. We scaled the skin back. There was no underlying hemorrhage. So there was no reason to take such. And again, if for no other reason than to discuss the findings that Dr. Bunnell had. Well, that would be true, but I don't think it really would have made any difference. One or the other. Yeah. I understand. Ron Ward again pulls out the photographs that Dr. Malik had given him. Ron says it looks like there's bruising on Janie's face and a cut across her nose and blood in her mouth. And Dr. Pless says this. I see discoloration, yeah. And you did not see this abrasion, this abrasion of her nose, and, and it even shows blood in her mouth. Right. That's what it looks like. Yeah. I would agree with you. And I, I don't know, but what, this isn't a little bit of blood here on top of her nose. That's an abrasion. Well, I don't know that. I do. You do? Yes. How do you know that? I saw my daughter. It was not, no blood up here. Uh-huh. It was an abrasion. This meeting gets pretty heated. The wards keep going back to the photographs they got from Dr. Malik and the x-rays that they insist were different from the ones they saw at the crime lab. And I don't know when, and I don't know who was involved. But I think sometime or another you've gotten the wrong idea about what these x-rays show. And, and it may be just a misunderstanding. Uh, and I don't know who's misunderstanding. But it's hard for me to believe, having seen her body and examined her skeleton personally, removed all the soft tissue, what I see is what, what I saw is what these photographs show and nothing else. And there is no, there is no injury. I mean, we, you will accept the fact that I did examine her body. Is that right? Yes, yes we understand yeah. that she did an autopsy on her body. We understand that. I mean, okay. But, but there's so many extenuating circumstances. Like this is Mona talking. She tells Dr. Pless about all the suspicious circumstances around Janie's death. But Dr. Pless says... The forensic evidence doesn't match what she's telling him. People tell me all these things that you've just told me. I mean, I'm not ignorant of any of these things. They've, people have made statements about this, mostly coming from you all. But when I look at a body, I have to develop my opinions from the body itself, not from what people may feel are the circumstances. But I have to look at the body and scientifically make an opinion about what went on. And no injury. There's just not any injury here that would have caused your daughter's death. After the meeting with Tim Williamson and Dr. Pless, there's a press conference. It's packed with news stations from across the state. As Ron and Mona leave the press conference, they're surrounded by reporters. 
Ron and Mona are trying to hurry through the interviews because they know that Janie's body is being driven away back to the cemetery to get reburied. Well, we thought they were, they were waiting for us, actually, because we were supposed to be there when they reburied her because the first time we got to pray, you know, like a funeral. It, it, you know, like it was another funeral. And uh, like when we had her exhumed, we got to do that. It was just so callous, you know, to just do that. It meant something, but it meant nothing to them. By the time they got to the cemetery, Janie was buried and the crew was driving away. They were supposed to have waited for the wards so that they could pray as their daughter was lowered into the ground for the third time. Once again, journalist Mike Masterson was outraged at the treatment of the wards and thought the third autopsy was horrific. And supposedly, they just absolutely skinned her. They just, there's nothing left if they wanted to do another autopsy. You know, that was not necessary, but yeah. they did it. So they made sure there wasn't going to be a fourth exhumation. He still thinks it's totally illogical that Dr. Malik would have cut and removed part of Janie's spine instead of it being torn from an injury. Why would he reach in and tear her spinal cord in the canal? So, no, it's just all a bunch of words. It's dissembling is what it is. Just words to try to fill air and try to confuse people. I mean, it didn't confuse me at all. And it didn't confuse most of Arkansas. I mean, I go around the state today, all these years later, and one or two of the questions I'm asked invariably deal with Janie Ward's case. You know, are they ever going to do anything with the Janie Ward case? What What about Janie Ward? So it really touched a nerve, this whole mess. We'll be right back. Love a good fright? Start streaming and screaming with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and critically acclaimed exclusives, discover what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series cover the entire horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of fan. Come experience highly anticipated new releases like Superhost, Seance starring Suki Waterhouse, and the Boulay Brothers' Dracula. Plus, don't miss out on Creepshow, Slasher, Flesh and Blood, and other must-see Shudder exclusives you won't find anywhere else. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good it's scary. This episode is sponsored by Maidenhome. High-quality, handcrafted furniture for the modern home. Made in Home brings you thoughtfully designed custom furniture, handcrafted in North Carolina. This region is home to some of the world's most talented artisans who are experts in woodworking, upholstery, and finishing. By partnering directly with these family-owned workrooms, Made in Home gives you access to the world's finest craftsmanship without the retail markup. From sofas and sectionals to tables and beds, you'll find beautiful heirloom-quality pieces that will last for years, and with over 60 fabrics and leathers and a variety of wood finishes to choose from, you can create a piece custom to your design style. Enjoy complimentary white glove delivery on all orders, a lifetime warranty, and easy returns within 30 days. To browse the latest collection and order free swatches, 
visit MadeInHome.com. That's M-A-I-D-E-N-H-O-M-E.com to start building your custom piece today. Good afternoon. Would you like to try a free sample of our double fudge brownie? Oh, sure. Mmm, that's very good. I'll just take one more, just to be sure. Yep, still very good. Some things never change, like never being able to take just one free sample. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Mmm, is that macadamia nut I taste? Let me take one more. Sir, mm. yeah, I thought so. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Dr. Pless's autopsy didn't provide definitive answers to how Janie died. He said she could have choked, she could have had a heart problem, and Dr. Pless seemed pretty convinced that there was no sign of a spinal injury or a blunt force trauma to the face. According to the forensic evidence provided by this autopsy, Janie didn't die from falling off the porch. She wasn't hit in the face with a baseball bat. She didn't run into the post and then fall off the porch, as Steve Ward had suggested and she didn't sustain a spinal injury in the truck on the bumpy roads back to the bank parking lot. So with this third autopsy, there is very little pointing to homicide in the forensic evidence. But at the same time, nothing is definitive about it. Her cause and manner of death remain undetermined. This seems incredible to have three different autopsies with three completely different results, and we needed to know more about how this could be possible. We found a forensic pathologist through the College of American Pathologists. Her name is Grace Dukes, and she's a board-certified pathologist and a member of the college's forensic pathology committee. We asked her to review the three autopsies. Our job as medical examiners is to determine a cause of death, and usually the manner of death, but that can vary by law depending on the state that you're in. Sometimes the coroner makes that distinction. At at our autopsy, we, we can see what we see grossly and microscopically. Um, And then the cause of death ultimately is our opinion. So in these three cases, people looked at the body, drew their own conclusions, and then formed their own opinions. I think some of the variation in the opinions comes from the fact that the body was in different states each time. You know, there had been dissections performed on it two different times by the time the third autopsy happened. Um, So there's substantial autopsy artifact. There's decomposition artifact. You know, there's embalming artifact. There are all these factors that could alter potentially the way that things look. And then even it, you know, someone doing their, you know, best job at an autopsy, there can still be variability in the opinion that people draw from those findings. To review the complicated history of Janie's autopsies, let's go back to 1989. Two days after Janie died, Dr. Fahmy Malik conducted an autopsy. He said that the cause of death was a hyperextension neck injury from falling off the porch. The manner of death was undetermined. Dr. Malik was a controversial figure in Arkansas. In 1991, he quit amid allegations that he botched several autopsies. In 1992, two out-of-state pathologists reviewed Dr. Malik's work. They didn't perform their own autopsy, but they did have access to the report, the photos, and the x-rays. The ones where the side view had a white blob that blocked most of Janie's neck. 
These are also the x-rays that the wards said were different from the ones they saw at the crime lab. At the crime lab, they insisted that they saw x-rays where it was clear that Janie had a broken neck. But the pathologists in 1992 said they were not convinced that Janie had a spinal injury. They also said the x-rays looked like those of a male skull. They changed Janie's death certificate, leaving both the cause of death and the manner of death as undetermined. Then Dr. Bunnell conducted his autopsy in 2004, 15 years after Janie died. He also concluded that Janie died from a neck injury and had blunt force trauma to the face. He said the manner of death was homicide. Dr. Cokes was a medical examiner at the crime lab at that time, and he wrote a scathing review of Dr. Bunnell's findings, mostly citing the lack of evidence and documentation for Dr. Bunnell's conclusions. Dr. Pless's autopsy was in 2007, 18 years after Janie died and after two other autopsies. He left the death certificate as undetermined in both cause and manner of death and said he saw no evidence of a spinal injury. We discussed Dr. Koch's review of Dr. Bunnell's autopsy in Episode 5. We asked Dr. Grace Dukes her impressions of that autopsy. Normally an autopsy, you know, would include the external exam, documentation of identifying marks, injuries, you know, any sort of distinctive feature. Then, um, you know, there would be an internal examination where you examine the organs, obviously in an embalmed, decomposing body with a bag of organs in the abdomen, you know, that's going to be limited. And then, you know, putting in sections for microscopic exam, which would also be relatively limited because the tissues will be decomposing. Um, and then potentially photographs and x-rays, et cetera. So, I mean, mo- many of those tasks were performed. I think he is a bit more brief in how he documents them. It is a significantly, you know, more brief report than, say, Dr. Pless's report, um, which is very thorough. But the conclusion that the second autopsy came to, that this was a homicide, you know, if, you, if you're going to change a manner of death, to especially to a homicide where people could be prosecuted, um, I think it's important to do all of the documentation of those injuries that you say, you know, were the lethal injuries causing the death in a homicide. And I think some of that isn't, isn't present and wasn't subject to examination later. You know, uh, Dr. Pless couldn't go back and look at the photographs and look at the detail in the report necessarily and come to that same conclusion. And other pathologists couldn't either. Much of Dr. Pless's autopsy, and Dr. Brunel's to an extent, are dedicated to autopsy artifact. That is, observations about the changes on the body that are due to previous autopsies, not the original injury. And so much of the debate over Janie's cause and manner of death has come from observations of her face. Ron Ward said he saw bruising. And even Dr. Pless admitted that according to Ron Ward's pictures, it did look like Janie had discoloration to her face. But there is postmortem lividity. So lividity is the natural settling of the blood within the blood vessels after a person dies. So everything just sort of, you know, flows down to the dependent portions, dependent to gravity. And so the blood is within those vessels. And then over a matter of hours, the blood can lyse and leak out of those vessels, and it'll become uh, what we call fixed, 
where, you know, when it's just in the vessels, you can push on it and you can make a white spot on the skin. Once it becomes fixed, um, well, you can push on it and it'll, it'll stay fixed there. Um, so that happens over a matter of hours. Dr. Duke said it can be hard to tell between injuries and lividity. Because if a body isn't embalmed in a timely manner after death, both of these things can cause what looks like hemorrhaging under the skin. But in his autopsy, Dr. Pless said there was no hemorrhaging underneath the surface of the face. So it seems that any discoloration on Janie's face happened after death. Dr. Pless's other huge finding was that Dr. Malik had removed part of the spinal cord, which Dr. Pless said was an unusual autopsy practice. And he concluded that there was, in fact, no spinal injury. Dr. Duke said that conclusion seems definitive because of the use of the CT scanner. So the CT scan is, is performed at some medical examiner's offices, um, but it's few. Uh, it's helpful because you get an image of the skeleton without having to cut it or scrape tissue off. It's just as, you know, as if you went into a hospital and they were imaging you and they could see your skeleton and if there was fracture, or if there was abnormality. Um, and so to have the CT scan of the whole body, you know, and show, have an, a radiologist examine it and show that there was not trauma there, there were not fractures, is very, very helpful. Whereas, in, you know, in the first autopsy, he was, uh, the pathologist was looking at all of these and feeling them and, you know, I don't know how much of the tissue he scraped off or what he removed or what he cut, but you know, he came to the conclusion that there are fractures there. And then the CT scan was able to definitively show that that wasn't true. We also asked Dr. Dukes about a couple of other theories, including the one that Janie drowned. So there's a, in one of the early reviews of the autopsy, there's mention of, or in, in the investigative reporting, there's mention of her clothing being wet and there's sand under her undergarments. And so I think that's a reasonable proposal but ultimately, you know, drowning is a, a diagnosis of exclusion. So it relies heavily on investigative findings. And as far as I could tell from what, what I looked at, investigative findings in the interviews don't support that. The, the choking, you know, to have a, a food bolus stuck in your throat and you're, you know, trying to inhale past it or breathe past it and you're straining and you're, you're increasing the pressure in your lungs, in the blood vessels of your lungs um, and your airways. So you can get those little petechial hemorrhages in a situation like that. But, you know, that, that can happen. It's, it's reasonable. Um, again, you know, nothing about the investigation suggests that she was choking. Um, there was no food bolus noted in her airway at the first autopsy. I mean, if it were lodged in there, you know, and, and EMS didn't suction it out, which is a thing that happens too, um, as they're trying to clear the airway. I don't know how much she was, I don't know how much resuscitation was done on her. When Kathy, who worked at the ambulance service, talked with investigators in 2007, she said she didn't see anything visibly wrong with Janie's spine. And she also said she didn't see any blockage in the windpipe, which could have indicated that Janie choked. Which leaves just one more question for Dr. Dukes. Could Janie have had a heart problem? Yeah, I think, I think that has to be considered a possibility because there are basically negative findings on her. There, there's the finding of the larynx, and I don't, you know, this many years later, 
I don't know if there's something else that could cause that or not. But so there are the petechiae, and then there's the the history of the wet clothing and the sand. Um, And so there are other possibilities. There's not definite proof of, of any of those scenarios. But in terms of a cardiac arrhythmia, anytime you have a death, especially in a young, healthy person um, with no findings, um, you have to consider that a possibility. Just some natural disease process where she suddenly, you know, collapsed. Like the ward's lawyer, Jerry Sallings, said about the investigative evidence, there's really nothing more that can be done in the forensic field. And that's because of a series of errors that built up over time. It started with Dr. Mallet, who removed part of the spinal cord with no explanation. Janie's fingernails were never swabbed. The x-rays were either poorly taken or lost. Also, Dr. Mallet mislabeled his cause of death. He said it was a hyperextension injury, but based on his theory of how she died, falling back and her head snapping forward, it's actually a hyperflexion injury. Dr. Bunnell's lack of documentation made it impossible to understand his findings. He made claims that were not backed up by the evidence. His descriptions of the injuries were brief. And by the time Dr. Pless did his autopsy, Janie's body had significant autopsy artifact. Still, because of the CT scan, it seems pretty convincing that she didn't have a spinal injury. We'll be right back. Fifteen minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope, it's Geico. Uh, Yeah, 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 that's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, giveth thou the berries. For fifteen minutes could save you 15% or more. No, it's from Geico, because they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Geico knows there are many reasons why you ride. From the exciting adventure of the daily commute to the peace of mind that Geico always has your back with 24-7 access to claim service and legendary customer service. But Pamela Mund had one reason in particular. My skin is extremely averse to most fabrics, except for the soft, buttery feeling of leather. Thankfully, I found my clan of leather lovers in the biking community. It's been life-changing. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a soap opera star. Gracious me, my car has storm damage and I've had to file a claim. Could it possibly get worse? Will my claims team leave me for someone else? Someone less intense? Um, no. Actually, when you file a claim with GEICO, you get your own dedicated claims team who promises to stay with you throughout the process. Oh, I've never known such loyalty. I can't wait for the second season. Geico. Great service without all the drama. The third autopsy concludes that there was no injury to Janie's spine. But we wanted to go back one more time and take another look at the spinal cord. Because that has been the focus of the investigation into Janie's death. And with no spinal injury, most of the theories about how Janie died don't make any sense. Even Dr. Pless agreed, it is odd that Dr. Malik would have removed part of the spinal cord in that first autopsy. That is not typical. And because that part of the spinal cord was removed, 
Neither Dr. Brunel nor Dr. Pless could actually see the part of the spinal cord that would have been injured. Unlike the cord, the vertebrae were intact. And the CT scan in the third autopsy did not show any fractures to these bones. When we talked with a journalist, Jason Peterson, the reporter who did the demonstration of Janie falling off the porch, he brought up one more theory, that Janie had been injured before the party, but that she hadn't collapsed until hours later. Dr. Pless's autopsy revealed that Janie did have bruising on her elbow, and he did confirm that she had the large bruise on her back. Although a lot of people really didn't want to talk with me when I called, there were some who did, and there were some who were actually quite chatty. And one of those was Billy. He was one of the three people who said he saw Janie fall off the porch. And so I wanted to talk to him and see if he had any theories. And when I asked him what his theory of what happened was, he said, and I'm quoting from my notes here, I know she fell off the porch, but I don't think the fall killed her. I think she was suffering from a previous injury. I think something happened to her either hours before or maybe a couple of days before that just caught up with her caused her to fall. And then Janie had been at the cabin earlier in the day. I seem to recall that she had gone down to the river to swim. I also remember hearing that the guy who drove her down there, he was spinning donuts and Janie was thrown out of the back of the truck and was injured that way. And maybe she thought she was okay, but was really injured more seriously than she thought. Kids take their trucks down to the Buffalo River, which is about two miles from the cabin all the time to do that. And so this is the first I've heard anything about an earlier trip in the day to the river and who may have may or may not have been there. And so, but as I started to think about his theory and the physical evidence, uh, you know, she had unexplained sand and gravel and her clothes were wet. I mean, sand and gravel like under her undergarments and, you know, falling out of a truck or another person said there was a fight down by the river. You know, those those things explain the presence, the unexplained presence of the sand and gravel in her, you know, under her clothes and why her clothes were wet. If she fell out of a moving truck and landed on her head, you know, face first, that could explain how her neck could have been that badly injured. Now, how you get to that middle ground where you're hurt really bad, but you're still kind of like a walking wounded, uh, you know, you'd need to talk to someone with more medical knowledge than myself to see if that's even possible. From what I saw in the case file, most of Janie's day appears to be accounted for in the investigative evidence. She was at her friend Leslie's house, then went to the grocery store in the pool hall, and then got picked up by Ron to go to the party. So this theory that she went down to the river before the party seems like a stretch. But I bring it up because I did talk to someone who knows a lot about spinal injuries. His name is Douglas Cohen and he's a Harvard-educated neurosurgeon who operates on catastrophic spinal injuries daily. I wanted to get to the bottom of all of our remaining spinal cord questions. Could Janie have had a previous injury that led to her collapse? And is there any way she could have had a spinal cord injury if the vertebra surrounding the cord weren't broken? I guess the first question I would have is, having seen um, the autopsy report, apparently in the first autopsy, the cord, the spinal cord was either taken out or her parents seemed to think that the spinal cord was cut by some type of injury, but then it didn't break any bones. And we're trying to figure out how likely that would be to happen. Exceedingly unlikely in a young, healthy, uh, young adult. You can see something like that in an infant where the bones aren't kind of well formed and there's more cut 
cartilaginous connections, um, but I have never seen any direct damage to the spinal cord without significant bony damage. That, that would not be your expectation in somebody who was a young adult. Um, okay, so the theory that, what about the theory that some other people have, that earlier in the day she was injured and the injury didn't manifest until she just, and that injury caused her to collapse at the party? You know, those things are possible, but again, exceedingly rare. Um, generally, when you have a traumatic injury, you're going to get some kind of uh, symptoms, significant complaints, even if you go on to develop what is known as an unstable cervical spine, which is the reason why um, you always see ambulance staff putting hard collars on patients. Theoretically, you injure your spinal um, the structures so that you have an unstable cervical spinal canal, even though the spinal cord itself is not injured. In theory, that is a person who, without proper bracing, can go on to develop worsening uh, spinal cord injury, but it is not somebody who will have no complaints of pain, who will be up and walking around, who will be you know, feeling well enough to go to a party and drink beer. In that circumstance, you're gonna have a patient with you know, uh, outlandish and, and almost insufferable amounts of neck pain, very difficult to move around, um, great deal of pain literally to, to, to get up from a seated position, let alone to walk around. So it, it's not something that you would expect to be clinically subtle enough for a person to kind of go about his or her business for the next several hours and then all of a sudden sustain a, uh, a life-ending injury like this. That would be very, very un unlikely. Is it possible for a, you know, otherwise healthy teenager to fall off a step less than 10 inches high in such a way that she would sustain this type of injury. Have you seen that? Well, what I will tell you is that you can, that yes, that a fall like that generally, uh, although unusually, can cause somebody's death. It, it does not cause somebody's death through cervical spine injury, however. That would be exceedingly rare and almost unheard of without any significant bony abnormalities. When I operate on you know, a traumatically injured spinal cord, it is a fucking mess in there. Things are torn and bleeding and bones are broken. So it's, it's not something that's subtle. What generally kills people when they fall is if they fall in a particular fashion, either kind of hitting the back of their head or the front of their head, they can go on to develop a significant contusive injury of the brain, increased intracranial pressure, um, and that can potentially cause death. It generally doesn't happen suddenly. It can happen suddenly, but at least that would be consistent with kind of pathophysiologic processes of which I'm familiar. Uh, a person falling off, uh, at, you know, a 10-inch step, sustaining a hyperflexion injury with essentially minimal or no bony injury, and then dying because of a cervical cord injury it is, as I mentioned, in my experience, unheard of, at least in the clinical setting. Right. And what about someone hitting her in the face, if that had happened? Someone hitting her in the face with a baseball bat and her dying from that? Well, that's certainly possible. Um, again, if you hit somebody hard enough in the face and they lose consciousness and fall back and hit the back of their head, that also can be a potentially lethal injury. But, you know, you would expect a profound amount of contusive injury where the bat made contact with the, with the scalp or skull or nose or eye socket. I, I do recall some mention of some kind of orbital ecchymosis on like the second or third um, 
uh, autopsy, I, mm-hmm. I don't recall specifically, but if you hit somebody hard enough in the face to kill them, you're going to, uh, without being too facetious, you're going to leave a mark. The coroner, most of the witnesses at the party, Kathy, who worked at the ambulance service, and investigator Bill Beach. None of these people said they saw obvious injuries on Janie the night she died. And no matter how we stretch the theories around Janie's death, it seems very unlikely that Janie could have died from a spinal injury. That means that any evidence that supports Dr. Bunnell's conclusion of homicide does not seem to exist. On June 5, 2009, the judge of the 3rd Division of the Searcy County Court signed an order. It reads, The special prosecuting attorney has found no probable cause for the filing of any criminal charges as a result of his investigation and the forensic reports, nor has he found it necessary to request the calling of a grand jury. It is further ordered that the special prosecutor, Tim Williamson, is relieved from any further responsibility. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Helen Gone is a joint production between School of Humans and iHeartRadio. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church and Gabby Watts are our producers and story editors. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, and L.C. Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for iHeart. Our field producer is Miranda Hawkins. Theme and original score are by Ben Salee. Available wherever you get your music. Please visit us at HelenGonePodcast.com or follow us on social media. Support for this podcast is from Williams. We make clean energy happen. Williams is the first North American midstream company to establish a climate commitment and an immediate approach to a sustainable future. We've released our 2020 sustainability report to track progress on our ESG goals, which includes a near-term emissions reduction target of 56% by 2030. We're leveraging our natural gas-focused strategy to fight climate change today and build a clean energy economy tomorrow. Our infrastructure and commitment are transforming the future of energy. Learn more at williams.com. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. (laughs) Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The Real Time Crime Podcast is for true fans of true crime. Join Leah Lamar and Teddy Mellencamp for an iHeartRadio original podcast dedicated to armchair detectives. Embark on a quest to unravel unsolved mysteries and delve into current criminal trials in real time. Why do I obsess over true crime? It's because I need to know every detail because they say that the devil's in the details. Listen to Real Time Crime on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.